The reading is from Psalm 69, verses 6 through 9, 19 through 21, and 30 to 33. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord, God of hosts. Let not, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my family, an alien to my mother's children. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. You know my reproach, and my shame, and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart, so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. The word of the Lord. Today's teaching is from John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray to worship you rightly all the days of our lives in spirit and in truth. Instill in us true devotion to your Son that we may grow up to live according to his pure and right religion. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So immediately after the miracle, the wedding at Cana, John the Evangelist then jumps straight into another related story, giving us another clue. It is the second sign that would reveal more of who Jesus is. Now this time away from the warmth, the intimacy of a local wedding, and out into the heart and center of the most religious place in the country during the holiest time of the year. Now, while the setting is drastically different, the context is the same. See, Jesus went from one feast to another feast. See, Jesus went from a local wedding into a national holiday party. See, the Passover was very much like a wedding anniversary party, but on a national scale. 
as it commemorated a time when Israel and God formed this special covenant union after the miraculous rescue from slavery in Egypt. So from the get-go, John the Evangelist is already eager to let his audience know that Jesus deliberately chooses, that Jesus deliberately chose these moments of feasting, of partying, of holiday, religious holidays, to point to himself. So it was, it was last Sunday that we heard from Tim, but when Jesus transformed purification water into the most superior wine to keep a party going, this was Jesus' first sign pointing to himself as the Lord of the wedding feast, as the master of festal ceremonies. And then here now in our gospel reading that Valerie had read for us, during the holiest season of, in the temple, Jesus will again point to himself, this time as the Lord of the temple, as the one who has divine authority to dictate and determine how God is worshipped, and as the new temple of God itself. Again, in our gospel reading, we'll see these three identity markers of Jesus. He's the Lord of the temple. He's the one with divine authority. And he's the one who is the new temple of God. So let's turn now in our Bibles, in in your apps, or in your hard copy in the gospel reading in John chapter 2. In verse 13, as any devout Jewish person would do if they're reasonably able to travel... Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. But one, one should not arrive empty-handed without animal to offer as a sacrifice. Now, there's no indication that Jesus arrived with an animal to present, but that was exactly the point, because earlier in the first chapter, John the baptizer pointed others to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. What he meant was, see, there over there is Jesus Christ. He's the Passover sacrifice from God. So here now visiting the temple is Jesus, is the ultimate Passover sacrifice. But not yet to present or offer himself as the final sacrifice. That would be for much, much later on. But he's there first to inspect. He's there first to inspect the state and condition of the temple, to find out if the temple should hold up to be the designated place of true sacrifice, if the temple remains yet to be the suitable and fitted place for the true worship of God. So Jesus' visit to the temple, it's, it's kind of like that final moment in every episode of that reality TV show, Undercover Boss. I mean, you haven't seen it yet, that the premise of the show was for that CEO or the top boss of a company to go undercover. You know, they'd put on disguise, they'd pretend to be the new hire in different departments of the company. And then they'd personally get to know the employees, they'd see firsthand the issues and problems that may exist in the company. Then at the end of each episode, there would be this big reveal, that is the boss would unveil their true and real identity. And depending on what the boss discovered, they would promise to enforce new company policy. They'd make changes in the business. And then at the last, they would reward, they would compensate, they'd promote people, or else they would fire people right then and there. Now, the last book, the Old Testament warned of this very moment. See, in chapter 3 of Malachi, It foretold of a day when all of a sudden God himself will enter 
will visit his temple. He will be like a refiner's fire that refines silver and gold to purify the children of Levi, the temple attendants and priests. So they would then offer pure and true sacrifice unto God. It's this time now in our gospel reading that Jesus, God in the guise of man, the top boss undercover, suddenly appearing to inspect his temple, to see what's really been going on in there. So then we read in verse 14. Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there at their booths. Now it had really been decades. It had been decades that commercial trade was happening in the temple grounds. Now this was not always the case, but temple trade became a convenient necessity and then it became a very, very good enterprise. See, as pilgrims traveled from all over Palestine, they carried with them local or imperial coinage. And on these coins are stamped the images of the ruling emperor or the gods and goddesses of the empire. Now, since the temple also levied a temple tax as an administrative or handling fee to process people's sacrifices, any such currency that bore these graven images were never accepted. They weren't allowed even to be inside the temple grounds for obvious religious reasons for the Jews. So these currency exchange booths were set up all over the outer court of the Gentiles, which was still part of the temple proper, but they were non-Jewish people and Gentile converts that would be allowed but no further in. So these money changers would put on a little bit extra for the services that they charge people. And besides that, vendors brought their sheep, oxen, and pigeons for sale in that same outer court of the Gentiles. They'd sell them to pilgrims or to the households for whatever reason and bring any sacrifice with them in their travels. So this was already the well-established and well-oiled money-making machinery in the temple for many years now. So when Jesus saw all this, we read in verse 15. He made a whip, a whip of cords, likely the ropes used to leash the animals, and he drove the vendors and the animals out. It's implied that Jesus used the whip for the livestock, not on people, and he spilled over the coins and overturned the money changers' tables. Now again, it had already been decades of this temple practice, and Jesus would have already known that this was happening since he was a little boy. He made the pilgrimages every year with his family. Why this time now? That's different. That compelled Jesus to take action. It was the appropriate time. It was time, the time was at hand to fulfill Scripture. The time for Jesus to break his cover, to remove the disguise, to disclose his identity as the Lord of the temple. The God who had suddenly, suddenly appeared to visit his house of worship. Jesus intended to make a scene. That was his intention. He was going to make a scene. He stepped onto the highest political religious platform of his day for everyone, especially for the religious leaders, to see, to take notice of him. See, it was, if there was TV back then, what he did would have made national headlines. And then in verse 16, John gives us more clarity for what What motivated Jesus to do this? Why he did what he did? Jesus said to the vendors, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house into a house 
of trade. Indeed, Jesus intended to make a scene, but he was making another point by taking action. See, it wasn't so much about Jesus speaking truth to power, or could this be interpreted as Jesus' stance against capitalism? It was not even about Jesus calling out foul and fraud in the religious institution. See, they'd permit imperial coins. They wouldn't permit imperial coins in the temple, but they would fill their pockets with the profit. They'd pollute the court of Gentiles with so much noise, but still provide animals for the pilgrims. I mean, as legitimate as these were against which to protest, they were not the main point of why Jesus did what he did. It was at the temple during this particular Passover that for the first time ever, Jesus exerted his authority publicly. His authority to disrupt and violate the establishment. His authority to lay claim to take hold of the temple and its practices. His authority to reform, to renew, and even replace the worship of Yahweh. This moment called back Jewish history several hundred years ago when the prophet Jeremiah confronted the temple administration of his day before the Babylonians destroyed the temple. This is what God said through, Moses, uh, through Jeremiah. Will you steal? Will you murder? Commit adultery? Will you swear falsely and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I see myself. I see, I've seen it for myself, declares the Lord. I've seen it for myself. John the Evangelist is making a direct parallel. Jesus in his identity and in his authority is the Lord of the temple. Jesus here is claiming that identity for himself. See, I myself am the Lord. I've seen it with my own eyes. How my house, as called by my name, has become a den of robbers, a den of thieves. But there's so much more to Jesus' authority. There's so much more. See, his authority is not just his own. He does not stand on his own. His authority is derived of another greater than himself. See, this is the moment in John's gospel that for the very first time, Jesus calls out to God as his father. Do not make my father's house. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The first ever mention of God as his father in public. Jesus has one who stands with him to back his claims. His own father who is the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. Jesus is not only the Lord of the temple, but he is one endowed with divine authority from his father, from his God, to dictate how worship should be. How are we today? When it comes to our worshiping God in the name of Jesus Christ. Have we devised our own ways of worshiping? A God perhaps crafted in our own image. A God who is so easy to kneel towards. A God so easy to give our prayers. A God who always answers our prayers. Have we cozied up so well to our own methods of religion? So used to so many years of a form of godliness without any power, when it's so convenient for us, when it profits us, when it excludes others who are different from us. 
How will Jesus find us today in the temple of our own bodies? How have we been using our bodies? In the cloisters of our own hearts? What's nestling in our own hearts? In the chambers of our own minds? What our eyes have been seeing? What will Jesus find? Is there too much noise? Is it in disrepair? Are there too many altars set up for too many gods? How will Jesus find us today if he would visit us in our homes, in our bedrooms, in our internet use, in our prayer closets, in our hearts, in our minds? These are sobering questions, and we must continually ask this of ourselves. Because all of a sudden, Jesus may come to visit us in judgment. But then in verse 17, when the disciples saw Jesus' claim of authority, they remembered the words from our first reading in Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now Psalm 69 was written by King David as a song of sorrow when he prayed to God for relief and rescue from his enemies. See, the disciples recalled that part when David described feeling abandoned by his family and that his own personal devotion, devotion to God, his own zeal for God's house, felt it had consumed him from the inside. Literally meaning in the Hebrew, it has torn me apart. But then notice there's a difference here. In the gospel, the verb tense is in the future. John quotes, zeal for your house will consume me. But the original psalm renders it in the present perfect. Zeal for your house has consumed me. What's going on here? See, John is foreshadowing, he's foreshadowing how Jesus' zeal for God's house will consume him. It will be a future event. How Jesus will be torn apart because of his devotion for the true worship of God. I mean, just as it, it did cost King David a lot to prepare the plans for the first temple that his son eventually built, it will also cost Jesus a whole lot to prepare the final plans and to recreate the ultimate house of worship for God. Because there's always a cost. There's always a cost to worshiping God. There's always a price to pay to worship God. Not because God arbitrarily demands it, but because the relationship between people and God is broken. It costs to repair. It costs to forgive. It costs to reconcile. That's why the animal sacrifices. That's why the priest. That's why the altar. That's why the temple. As long as the relationship is broken between people and God, someone has to pay. But for how long? For how much? What would be enough to repair, to forgive, to reconcile people and God? If perfect devotion to God would be possible, if true worship of God would be accomplished, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Passover sacrifice, would have to pay because of his zeal for God's house. Jesus will have to shoulder the cost because of his devotion to the true worship of God. Now back to our gospel reading. As the dust was just settling, the people around Jesus, they were looking at him so confused as they were astounded. But they were Jews after all, and they were keen to inquire as they saw something 
undeniably significant in the actions of Jesus. There was something in what Jesus did that wasn't just some random act of domestic disturbance. See, it was also the same time that the, all of Israel was feverish. He was feverish in their expectation for the coming Messiah. There had been many before Jesus who claimed to be the Christ, but they all turned out to be nothing. So the people have not grown too jaded or disillusioned from these false messiahs. So they didn't quickly dismiss or ignore or arrest Jesus then and there. There was something that he did that clued in for them. This is something a messiah would do. And so in verse 18, they asked him a politically and religiously charged question. What sign? What sign do you show us for doing these things? They asked for authentication. They were really asking to show for him to show a Messiah ID. Show us some ID. Who do you think you are for making a scene like this that only the Messiah would be doing? And then Jesus answered in verse 19. Destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. Destroy this temple. I'll raise it up in three days. Now the Jews had hoped for an instant supernatural sign in the sky. Everyone scoffed at Jesus' answer. Rebuild rebuild the temple in three days, what had been still taking more than 46 years to finish. They thought Jesus was a joke. Now we don't know what happened afterwards. Likely, they all walked away, and the vendors took their places again and carried it on as usual. But John would not want us to miss the deeper significance of Jesus' very cryptic and even ominous words. In verse 21, John is going to explain it to us very clearly. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Then when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed No one had gotten it, at least not yet. It would not be for another three Passovers until Jesus' followers would understand the only sign that Jesus gives as the only proof of his authority. That's the only sign that we have left, even today. That's the only sign, the sign of Jonah. Jesus' death on the cross would mark the last of the Passover sacrifices and the beginning of a cosmic recreation of true worship. For all the world now to enjoy and to participate. It's not just for the Jewish people anymore. See, when Jesus' body would be destroyed on the cross, he would destroy with him the restrictions, the limitations, the demands, and the weaknesses of the Mosaic law. Demolishing the wall between Jews and Gentiles, between the chosen and the rejected, between the clean and the unclean. The tearing of Jesus' flesh tore open the curtain that hid the most holy place from the rest of the world. The consuming of Jesus' body burned away the last of all Levitical and priestly rituals. And after three days when he had raised his body, he has authority to cast his life away and to take it back up. He has authority given by the Father to do so. When he's raised his body from death, Jesus became the new temple of God, became the new temple where people and God should meet, where people are united and reconciled to God and to each other, where anyone, anywhere, at any time would encounter God and worship him. Jesus is the new temple of Yahweh. What does this then mean for us today? What does this mean for us? We no longer 
We no longer have to bear the burden and the cost to make it right with God. We don't have to make the endless pilgrimages even to the ends of the earth, to the very bottom of the ocean, to the highest heavens, only and always to be met at the porch behind the curtain of a hidden and holy God to pay him homage at our own expense, even at the risk of our own lives and souls. Nor could we even do so. God had come to us from the most holy place, through the veil and curtain of his most heavenly throne and met us eye to eye, flesh to flesh, wound for wound, toes dug into the mud in the body and person of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus united and reconciled us to God in this torn apart body, our own eyes can see. Our eyes would see on this planet, in your own home right now, today, no matter how frustrating or impossible that it feels, this is the real divine miracle of reconciliation. The radical and, the radical and unimaginable power of forgiveness. The disarming and costly work of generous restitution. The rebel returning, the self-righteous humbled, the oppressed restored, the oppressor repenting, the victim justified, the victimizer judged and transformed. These are possible now because of Jesus Christ. Even today, our fragmented and fractured humanity can be reconstituted, can be recreated in Jesus Christ. Walls along racial lines, racial lines, along economic lines, along political lines, along religious lines. We can see them torn apart and destroyed. Because Jesus' body was torn apart and destroyed on the cross 2,000 plus years ago. And rising from death, Jesus has reconstructed an eternal, invincible temple in his body that all authority to call now. He has all authority to call every creature on earth. Worship God in spirit and in truth. Repent of your sins. Repent of your idols. Believe in the gospel. This will please the Lord far more than ox, far more than bulls with horns and hooves. Jesus is the Lord of the temple. He's the one with divine authority to call the shots, to dictate and determine how God ought to be worshipped because Jesus is the new temple of Yahweh. Let's ask him, let's pray to God to renew in us the same zeal for the name of Christ and then to be consumed in ourselves, to be consumed for the honor and glory and fame and the spread of his name throughout all the world in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.